Since we'll be looking at, um, is this on? Okay. <laughs> um, First Peter chapter 2, uh, verses 4 through 10. Uh, if you would, open your Bibles, and if you're using the, the Bibles that are available here, it's page 1218. First Peter 2, and I'll be reading through, or from verse 4 down through verse 10. Hear now God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says... See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone, and a stone that causes men to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Hear the word of God. I am not a church historian, and so I'm not going to tell you a lot about church history uh, this evening, but um, this coming Tuesday marks the 500th year since Martin Luther started the Reformation. My ancestors came from Wittenberg, so it's a very emotional thing. I'm angry at David because he didn't take me with me, with him to be his translator, and I'm not there, and he is. And he could care less about <laughs> being in Germany, and I'm like, oh. <laughs> no. But we lived in Germany, and so I know a lot about that just by breathing the air, being in Germany. Don't ask me anything about Scottish Reformation history. I don't know it. Uh, but German uh, Reformation, I do know a wee bit. But Luther posted those theses on the, the castle uh, church door in Wittenberg. And interestingly, those 95 theses, and there's not going to be 95 points to the sermon tonight, so just rest assured, uh, but most of those theses had to do with repentance. That's what started the Reformation. You have to let that sink in. Uh, you'll hear a lot uh, about the political influences and so forth and so on. And the Reformation was a complex thing. There were political, economic forces at work, but it was at its core about the gospel of Jesus Christ. How are we right before God? Luther, as an individual, struggled with that. He wrestled with, how can I, knowing his heart, how can I be right before a holy God? He knew that the works he did aren't going to make it. He knew that he knew how to do good works, but never did them, or didn't do them completely. 
And so he wrestled with, how am I going to be saved, basically, is what we would say. But a good Lutheran way of saying that is, how can you be just before God? And so he wrestled with it. But it shows us in his own personal life and then the outpourings of writing that comes from Luther. It was about the gospel. Now, some of you on the, in the lunch um, prayer meetings have been going over the five areas that were rediscovered by the Reformation. Scripture alone, Christ alone, grace alone, justification by faith alone, and everything to the glory of God alone. Hopefully, those are not strange new things to you. But at the time of the Reformation, they were radically new. People were put to death because they said those things. And people were willing to die because they felt that's what the Word of God claimed. And you need to understand that. There was much more involved in the Protestant Reformation. We don't have time this evening to go over a whole history of that. Crawford touched on it. Music. It transformed worship and music. And the whole idea of Christian hymns. And I know we're Presbyterians, but we will sing a mighty fortress is our God in heaven. (laughs) But it wasn't just that. Family life. Christian education was almost non-existent. And at the time of the Reformation, Luther and his helper Melanchthon started a whole system of schools across Germany. So why? So that people could read the scriptures themselves and have access to the word of God. Not so that they could better themselves and make a, a, you know, more money and, and have an easier life, but so that they could understand God's Word. That's what was at the core of the Reformation. And there's much, much more. And this evening we're going to look at one aspect of what the Reformation brought about that we all take for granted. I'm not up here in some funky robe. Thanks be to God. <laughs> you don't have to depend on me for your salvation. Thanks be to God. We all just take that for granted. But at the time of the Reformation, society was radically, radically different. Something that's almost incomprehensible to our present post-enlightenment secular mindset. All of life was penetrated with the church. And your salvation depended on your tie to the church. You had no access directly to God. You had to go through the church. You had to go through the priests and all of the rituals. You had to go through all of the motions and the demands that were put on you. And everything was divided up. You had the secular world. And you had the religious or believing or trusting world. The sacred and the secular were divided and penetrated all of society. And today, there is no divide anymore because it's all secular. But in that day and age, there were two realms. And you didn't have access to the sacred except through the church and through the priests and through the church's rituals. You wouldn't think about just praying on your own. You'd have to go through a a saint who was there somehow having better, a better life than you could ever produce. And it was their goodness that gave voice to your prayer. And Luther came and said, no. There's this thing called the priesthood of all believers. We're all priests. We all have access to God. We all have a responsibility before God. 
and all of life is to be an act of worship. Not just what you do on the Lord's Day in a confined situation, in a limited amount of time, but everything, whether you're a farmer, a knight, a prince, whatever, you're to do it all to God's glory. That revolutionized Europe. And now the secularists today can say, well, just do away with that. We don't need Christianity anymore. It transformed the history of Europe in a radical, radical way. But as we think about this idea of the priesthood of all believers and looking at what is said in 1 Peter, and you can just keep your your finger in there because we'll be jumping around in that text a wee bit as we move through. You have to understand, I teach Old Testament, so you're going to get Old Testament. And Peter, I love, because he quotes all over the place from the Old Testament. He uses some images here. He quotes from different places in the Old Testament. But he's focused this evening as we look at the priesthood of all believers, which was rediscovered by the Reformation. Peter picks up on two major images coming out of the Old Testament and then transforms them. He takes these Old Testament passages that he quotes from, and he quotes from Isaiah 28, 16, Psalm 118, 22, Isaiah 8, 14, and Hosea 1, 6, and 9 to 10, and then chapter 2, verse 23. This passage is chock full of Old Testament images and references. What that's saying is if you want to know about Jesus, what God the Father thinks of him, and what people think about him, and what he was going to do, you have to go to the Old Testament. You have to be grounded in that in order to understand what's going on. But Peter doesn't just quote these things and say, that's nice and that's going to happen when Jesus comes. He explodes those images with the reality of who Christ is and what he's accomplished and the benefits that that brings to us as we look at these. But I want us to see just these two Old Testament images, first of all. The first is the temple. He talks about a spiritual house here, and I couldn't believe it when Andy got up and preached this morning. It was just like, oh my word, we didn't know which, who was preaching on what, and so it's just God's doing, and it's one of those God kind of things. He's just amazed. So I only have to say half of what I wanted to say, because you just listen to Andy's sermon, and you'll get the rest, okay? But first of all, it's the temple. In the Old Testament, God created man to fellowship with him. Then man sinned. God had to throw him out of the garden. There had to be separation because of that sin. The whole idea of the tabernacle was that God could come once again and dwell in the midst of his people. It was remarkable. There in the midst of the camp of Israel, all the 12 tribes surrounded the tabernacle where God sat on the mercy seat, where the blood would be poured out, where atonement would be made. There he was. You could poke your head out of your tent and look down the street and there's the pillar of fire, the pillar of cloud. Right there was God. But there's separation still. You didn't dare, as a common person, enter into God's presence. Only the priests could do that. And only the high priest once a year went into the Holy of Holies. So it was good news and bad news. The temple, the tabernacle was, yes, God is here. But there's still separation. There's still got to be something else come. That's what's so remarkable when we get to John's gospel. Here, God's glory dwells amongst us. 
That's what John's talking about. The temple has finally come. God is now dwelling in Jesus Christ on the earth. The temple is a symbol of restoration, but it cried out for something more. So it's that image that you have to kind of have in the back of your mind as we look at what Peter says here. Secondly is the idea of the priesthood. Priests represented the people before God. Prophets were God's representatives to the people. They came and said, this is what God says, and this is what God wants you to do. The priests would take the sacrifices into the Holy of Holies or in and offer them up. They represented the people. They made worship possible. They interceded for the people. They were to lead the people in worship. Keep these things in mind, okay? Because Peter's going to draw on this image of a priesthood. And we're not familiar with priests and what they do, particularly Old Testament priests. I'm glad, because now we don't have to sacrifice animals and do all of those things. But we have to understand those images in the Old Testament were looking forward to what was to come. And Peter's going to be talking about that. So you have to understand that priests represent the people, they conducted and led people in worship, and they taught God's people his ways, his laws, so that they would know what would be pleasing to God, how they could express their love for him and devotion to him. That's what priests did. Okay, now keep those things in mind as we look at this passage. One last thing. Israel. In the Old Testament... The nature and function of Israel was very clearly defined. Israel was to be a holy nation. Israel was to be a nation of priests. Israel, through the covenant relationship with God and their worship and their way of life and their words, was to perform a threefold function of a priest. The whole nation was to intercede for the nations around them was to lead the nations back into the worship of Yahweh and was to teach the nations the law of God, the way of God. Sadly, Israel never made it. <laughs> you look at the history of Israel, and it's one failure after the next. They were to be a holy nation, but they weren't. They were to be a royal priesthood, but they weren't. Israel as a nation failed miserably in their task, but that was never an end in of itself. It always pointed to a greater reality that had to come, namely Christ, God with us, Emmanuel, our faithful high priest, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of his people. That was what they were pointing to, that reality. When Peter writes this, that reality has come. And now he's talking about the outworkings of that with regard to us as believers. Peter picks up on these two images of a living temple and a new priesthood and uses them to describe us, believers today. It's very much part and parcel of what Andy was saying this morning. The church, this is about the church. Peter uses Old Testament images, which I like. Hopefully you would like them too as we look through this. First of all, the picture of the living temple. As you look through here in verse 4, he talks about a living stone. And he describes that stone. And it's talking about Christ. He is risen from the dead. He's not dead stone. He's alive. 
He was rejected by men, and Jesus talked about that when he was on earth, that he expected to be rejected and put to death. That's why he had come. But then Peter goes on and says he is chosen and precious in God's sight. This was his beloved son that he had sent to redeem his people. He chose him. He sent him. And he was precious. And there's much we could say about that, but we need to move on and look through what the rest of what Peter has to say here. Because if you jump down in verses 6 and 7, you'll see that Peter starts quoting from the Old Testament. And in at least the Bibles that are available here, those Old Testament quotes are offset so that you can understand those are quotes from the Old Testament. And before we take a look at what's said in these verses, we need to understand the importance of what's being said here. What Jesus did and how not only the Father but human beings reacted to him is stated in these Old Testament passages. The whole Old Testament is looking forward to Christ. Jesus says that when he's talking to the disciples on the road to Emmaus. First of all, he quotes from Isaiah 28, verse 16 and verse 6. And basically, this is a call to faith. Jesus is the cornerstone, and he's saying, trust him. The cornerstone bespeaks this building image of a temple. And the cornerstone is what you lay first, and then the rest of the building follows from what's laid there. You go down in verse 7, and he quotes from Psalm 118, verse 22. And here, there's a distinction. There's a decision that needs to be made. Those that receive him or those who don't believe in him. Just like he said earlier, there's those that are going to reject this cornerstone. But he's precious and chosen in God's sight. Here, when he comes amongst human beings, when you start talking about somebody to somebody about Christ, there's going to be a distinction made. Not everybody says, oh, I'm, I'm so thankful you told me that. <laughs> you know, a lot of people say, don't want to hear it, not interested. And so Psalm 118.22 talks about this distinction that's being made. Down in verse 8, he quotes from Isaiah 8.14. This is the consequences of unbelief. It's not just, oh, if you like to believe in Jesus, that's fine, but if not, whatever. But there are consequences to that. Jesus becomes a stone of stumbling if they disobey the word. And so there's a distinction that he makes as this cornerstone, this foundational stone. The point Peter is making here is that we need to make a choice. Either we believe on Christ, the cornerstone of the living temple, or we do not. There's no in-between, no middle ground, no gray area. He's come. Now what do you do with him? Is he the cornerstone, chosen and precious by God? Or is he just a a stumbling stone, somebody that makes an offense to you? The whole living temple, what Peter is saying here, is the whole living temple is built on Christ alone. He is the only foundation or the cornerstone upon which the salvation that we so eagerly desire is built. The question is, have you laid your laid hold of him by faith? Does your salvation rest securely on who he is and what he's done? Not on what you've done, because you'll never do enough, but on what Christ has already done. 
Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3.11, For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. He is the sure foundation of this new temple that's being built. Christ is the foundation upon which this living temple is built. He's chosen and precious, and we need to trust in him. But then Peter goes on and describes the rest of the temple. It's not just, oh, isn't Jesus wonderful? He's the cornerstone. That's it. Then he talks about this rest of this building, and it's remarkable. It's not bricks and mortar. It's living stones. And he's talking about us. We are the temple of God. That should just blow your head off. (laughs) God has taken up residence, not in some far-off place where only the high priest goes, but within his people. Wherever two or three are gathered, there I am in your midst. He's here, the living God. And that's what he's talking about here. The picture that Peter is painting does not stop with the description of the cornerstone. He goes on in verse 5 to describe the rest of the temple for us. It's not a picture of stones in the Old Testament temple. If you go to Jerusalem, the stones are absolutely mammoth. I don't know even how they move them. They're just absolutely mammoth. But this is talking about living stones that make up this new temple. And he uses the same expression, just as Jesus is the living stone, he says, we are living stones. I mean, it's just remarkable, again. It's not like Jesus is way here, over here, and then we're different. We're living stones built into this building. The same expression Christ is the living stone, and believers are living stones. As we place our faith in him, as it says in Ephesians 2.4 and Colossians 2.13, he makes us alive together with him. We share in his life. He causes us to be born again. We don't do that. We don't cause ourselves to become alive and living stones. He does that as we trust in him. This is the core of the gospel. Salvation by grace alone through faith in the finished work of Christ alone. It's only by trusting in him, in Christ, that we can have life eternal. That fellowship with the Father can finally be restored. And Peter says that we're being built up, in verse 5, as a spiritual house. What you need to see here is that it's not about us. We think salvation is about us far too often. It's about me getting my sins forgiven so that I can have a good life or get to heaven, or however you want to talk about it. That's not the picture we have in Scripture. Why we are redeemed is so that we can be fitted together into this house that's becoming the dwelling place of God on earth. It's not about us. It's about Christ. It's describing us as living stones, as part of a larger, bigger picture. As individual living stones, we are being built up into a spiritual house, the temple the dwelling place of God. Paul talks about this, and and Andy did a remarkable job this morning of talking about that from Ephesians 2, 19 to 21. We, the church, are this temple. Is that how you think of the church? Or is it this place you go, these certain activities you do or don't do, as the case may be? Peter's saying we are the church, and the church is where God dwells. Is that how you think about yourself individually? Is that how you think about what we do corporately? 
We're the place where God dwells. That's what Peter is saying here. It's remarkable. It's not just as isolated individuals, but we jointly, as the body of Christ, we the church, God's people, are his temple. Why? Because we're so good? Because we have earned the right to be that through what we've done? No. It's only because of what Christ has done. He has paid for our sin, clothed us with his perfect righteousness, sent his spirit to indwell us, to grant us new life so that we can become conformed to the image of his son. That's how we need to think of ourselves. That's how we need to think of what we are as the church. In verses 5 and 9, Peter continues to build on this picture of a living temple by describing this new priesthood which serves in that temple. So we're the temple, but we're also the priests that serve within the temple. So he mixes his images here. First of all, he gives us a picture of this new priesthood, and he describes it with three different elements, a priesthood, a people, and a treasure. He talks about us being a priesthood in verses 5 and and 9, a priesthood that is both holy and royal. Holy isn't the kind of idea that I'm holier than you and I'm better. Sometimes I think we get that idea as Christians that, you know, I'm a priest and, you, you know, I know what's going on and you don't, and that's not the idea at all. Holy has the idea of completely dedicated to God, devoted to Him, set aside for His service, not just once in a while, but all the time. And a royal priesthood, think about it, we were enemies, Paul says. We were hostile to God. And yet now he's saying we're, we've been made royal. We've been made royalty. It doesn't say a lot to us who are Americans what royalty is. <laughs> but I think you understand that better than we. So teach us some things about that. But we were enemies, hostile. Now we're holy. Now we're a royal priesthood. It's absolutely remarkable. And this is all God's doing. We didn't earn it. We didn't do anything to deserve it. But believers have now been given the task of being priests. But he goes on in verse 9 and talks about a people who is chosen and holy. Just like Christ was chosen, we've been chosen. And we're also holy. We're a holy nation. And he's, he's, he's referring here to Deuteronomy 7, verses 7 and following, and Exodus 19, 5, where Israel was told that's what they were to be, but they failed. And now Peter is saying, you who are in Christ, you who trust in Christ, you've become that. You are now this holy nation, this chosen people. God is holy. And it's only as we trust in Christ that we are made holy. It's not because we are so holy ourselves. The only explanation the world can have for anything that's going on inside of us is that it's God's grace at work in our lives. And then lastly in verse 9, he talks about a possession. And the word that he uses here is not material possession like we think of, but a treasure. Is that how you, again, you think about yourself, that you're God's treasure? I look at my own life and I think, no way. But here again, this is the wonder of the gospel. God looks at me not seeing me. He sees his son 
who he delights in. Not Will Traub. He sees Christ so that we can become treasures in his sight. That's what's being said. And then he quotes at the very last in verse 10 from Hosea, Hosea uh, chapter 1, verses 6 and 9 and 10 and 2.13. It's a picture from the Old Testament if you know anything about the book of Hosea. God says, I want you to marry this prostitute who went out whoring. He said, that's just like what my people have been. They've gone to every god there is. But I've been faithful, just like Hosea was to be faithful. And he declares, you weren't my people, but now you are. You hadn't received mercy, but now you have. This is grace upon grace upon grace. They didn't do anything to deserve that, nor have we. But that's, again, the gospel. This is an expression of what Paul says in Ephesians 2, 4 and 5. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Thanks be to God. Once again, this passage is laying before us the wonder of the gospel. Salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in what Christ has done alone. But, you know, priests didn't just go into the Holy of Holies and go, okay, I'm here, that's it. (laughs) That wouldn't be a good priest. The priests had functions. They had responsibilities. They had duties to perform. And this new priesthood that Peter is talking about has responsibilities, has duties to perform. So he talks about the function, first of all. And he couples this description of the special priesthood with an explanation in verses 5 and 9 of the function of this priesthood. Remember what a priest does in the Old Testament, okay? That's why I talked about that at the outset, because he's going to talk about that same kind of image here. First of all, in verse 5, Peter makes clear in verse 5 that this new priesthood are just as the priests in the Old Testament to offer sacrifices. Oops. We need to have an altar here, right? And we need to bring a little goat in and slaughter it and have blood spritz all over the place. Thanks be to God we don't have to do that. Why? Because Jesus did it once for all. He is the Lamb of God. He made the sacrifice. So then what's Peter talking about? We're going to offer up sacrifices. What's going on? Do we have to reinstitute Old Testament sacrifices? Far from it. But this act of worship begins as a sacrifice. We don't offer blood sacrifices because Christ shed his blood perfectly, paying for all of our sins. Look at Hebrews 9, 12, and 26. These spiritual sacrifices are not something that we create or bring on our own. Rather, they are brought through Jesus Christ, Peter says. They are brought on the basis of his one and finished sacrifice. They are brought through him as our faithful high priest, who stands in the presence of the Father, interceding on our behalf, on the basis of his perfect shed blood. But secondly, Peter here calls them spiritual sacrifices. What's that mean? There's two verses I think we need to look at. The first is found in Romans 12.1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. The idea here is that all that we are is to be offered up on the altar, consumed, 
a good sacrifice in the Old Testament, there was nothing left. <laughs> How much of you is left over when you offer to God what you'd like to? The idea is that we're to offer up ourselves 100% as a spiritual sacrifice to God. Why? To earn something? No. <laughs> but because he sent his son to pay the price for us, to clothe us in his righteousness. So what Paul is saying is here that every aspect of life, all of life is to be a nonstop, 100% commitment to God in worship. Everything. Not just we do what we do now in this time on the Lord's Day, but tomorrow morning when you interact with each other, when you talk to your neighbor, that's to be a spiritual sacrifice to God offered up in thanksgiving. Second verse is found in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 15, and it indicates that we are to continually offer up a sacrifice of praise. You might think, oh, then we should have praise services all the time. And some of you would probably say amen subtly because we're Presbyterians and we don't say that too loudly. But that's not what he's talking about because it's, because it's there in, in Hebrews thirteen fifteen, coupled with doing good and sharing what you have. Because with such sacrifices, God is pleased. So again, it's a whole life act of worship. Everything that we do, not just certain special things, but all of life, this continual offering up of a sacrifice of praise is coupled with a life that is sacrificial. This is why we have been made part of the new priesthood, so that all that we are, every thought, every word, every deed, can be one ongoing act of worship offered up to our Redeemer and King, not to gain His favor, or earn salvation, but because we love him. We're grateful for the salvation that he has guaranteed for us. But then there's also an act of proclamation. It's not just an act of sacrifice, but verse 9 talks about the purpose of this priesthood. According to what Peter says in verse 9, these acts of worship are to be accompanied by acts of proclamation. In other words, the reason that we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, is so that we can proclaim certain things. Who we are is to impact not only what we do, but what we say. So what's this that we're to declare? Just a little hint. It's not about us. (laughs) It's not about, see how good I am. I'm a royal priest. Aren't you glad I'm here? (laughs) No. But we are to declare the excellencies, the praises in the NIV, of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. It's all about Jesus. That's what we're to do 24-7, if you will. This is what evangelism and missions is. It's the good news of who God is and what he has done in Christ. It's telling people that I was in darkness but now I'm in his wonderful light. I was blind, but now I see. I was dead, but now he's made me alive. It's simply extolling the wonder of who God is and his grace. And this is what this new priesthood is to do in every area of life, nonstop praise of God. It's a life that is a never-ending doxology, not to earn things, not to gain standing, 
It's simply out of love and thankfulness for the wonder of who Jesus is and what he's done. Then you need to look at the implications of this. We're a temple. We're a priesthood. A priesthood that's royal, that's holy. To be engaged in sacrifices offered up to him of praise and thanksgiving. We're we're also to be engaged in declaring certain things about him. Again, we have to go back to the Old Testament. Israel was a miserable failure. The temple. God lived in the midst of his people, dwelling there. But they couldn't draw near. They had to offer up sacrifices constantly. And even they didn't satisfy. The priests in the Old Testament represented the people before God. They led in worship. They taught the law. Just as a reminder. And Peter takes all of that and says... That's us. We're this temple. We're the dwelling place of God. Do your neighbors know that about you? Do they knock on your door and go, I want to see God. (laughs) I want to see how you live, how you interact, so that I can get a sense of who God is. And we're priests. Do you intercede for the nations, your neighbors, as priests? Is that your priestly duty out of thanksgiving to God for what he's done for you? We do that here. We pray Sunday evenings. But do we do that day in, day out for the nations? People lost in darkness who don't have a clue who Jesus is. We need to pray, intercede for them. Our neighbors, not just people way off, but even close at hand. We're to lead them in worship, not just when we come to church, but our whole life should be an act of worship. So they should see what worship is like in the way we respond in life, in real situations. And we're to teach them God's ways, his laws, so that they can know what's pleasing to him by looking at our lives, particularly God's holiness. How are people today in a secular society ever going to know that God's holy? They're not going to read the Bible and see things there. They're going to look at your life. And if they see it there, then they're going to begin to understand what that's all about. But we need to reflect that as his priests. But then also we need to declare the excellencies of Christ. That's our job as priests. I also used to say about a lot of the Psalms are written by these musicians. That's all they did is praise to God. Well, that's our job. (laughs) We're to just praise God with our whole life. It should be a hymn of praise to him. Declaring who he is in all that we say and do. This is all of life. That's what the priesthood of believers was all about when Luther rediscovered that. It's not just these priests over there that go in a monastery, you know, and do weird things and live ascetically and and all that kind of thing. It's priests in every area of life, permeating all of life with the gospel. And what we say and what we do, how we act, and our devotion to Christ. That's what the priesthood of believers is about. We don't have special people that do that for us. I'm not your paid person, thanks be to God, or you'd be in trouble. (laughs) That I have access to God, so therefore you have to depend on me. We're to lead the nations into the worship of God. That's our job as priests, and what a privilege. We can worship him. That's great. 
but to see the nations coming. So whether you're from Kyrgyzstan or Burundi or the U.S. or Scotland or wherever, the people of God, wherever they are, are priests. And we need to identify with our brothers and sisters globally because we are the temple of God. And we need to worship him in all of life so that his name might receive glory. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you that you, by your grace, have made us a dwelling place in which you, you live. You've taken up residence within us by your Spirit. We thank you that you have made us into a royal priesthood, a holy people, your own treasure. Lord, we have not earned that. We couldn't earn that. We marvel at your grace. Help us, dear Lord, change us that we might perform the responsibilities of priests with delight and worship. We ask this in the name of Christ, our Savior. Amen. We're going to close our service this evening by singing together again. Uh, Voices in Harmony will lead us as we do that. We're going to sing um, the Martin Luther hymn, A Safe Stronghold, Our God is Still. Um, And if you remain, remain standing for the benediction after we've sung this together.